you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the third chapter, and we will be looking this morning as we make our way through this book at the, at least what was one time the most popular verse in the world, John 3.16, and we'll look especially this morning at the first half of this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, your love is infinitely valuable and beautiful and wonderful and precious and glorious and great. And Father, I am incredibly and immeasurably undeserving and unable to be able to speak about that love this morning. Father, it is a message that we are not worthy to hear. It is a love that we do not deserve to receive. It is a love that is not motivated by our worth or our works, but freely flows from your heart toward a sinful depraved world. And Lord, you deserve to be glorified and magnified because of your love. And I pray this morning, Lord, not for our sake, not for our sake, but for your sake and for the sake of your Son, that you would send your Spirit and anoint me to preach your word, to make clear your gospel to work in our hearts to make this love clear and amazing and supremely valuable so that we would sell everything we have in the world to come and know it. Father, I pray for the unbelievers in our midst that you would remove every distraction, that you would convict of sin, that you would make the need of redemption clear and pressing that you would convict them and that they would see your love as the most important thing in all the world. And Father, for those of us who are believers, let us say, after we conclude this morning, how could we boast of anything? Let us boast only in the cross and in the love of God. Let our sin be so clear to us that the abundance of our sin this morning would be a means of magnifying the abundance of your love for us in Christ Jesus. Father, come and work. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. September 7th, 1807, which will be marked tomorrow as the 200th year and one month anniversary of Robert Morrison arriving in China. Robert Morrison was the first Protestant Christian missionary to China. I read about him last night. He baptized the first Chinese Protestant Christian. He translated the Bible into Chinese, and he ordained the first Chinese pastor, Liang Fa, who after Morrison's death had to flee to Singapore because of the persecution of the Chinese government. Morrison became known as the father of Protestant missions in China, and it came with a cost. 
He watched his wife become very ill and she had to leave the country and she spent most of her time away from him. And she died young, leaving behind two children. He only took one furlough in 27 years on the mission field. He had few converts that could be directly traced to his missions work. And he died young from a fever and most of all from exhaustion at the age of 52. The question that I asked as I read about Brother Morrison was, what drives a man to go to the other side of the world to live in unpleasant conditions, to be persecuted by a government, to be rejected by most of the people, to see your wife die, to see your children grow up without a mother, and then to die young, exhausted, with your body spent and abused in the work of spreading the gospel. And the answer that came to mind is the love of God. A verse like John 3, 16. Because when you see how much God loved the world, that He would give His only Son, the only application we can make is, is that we should love the world in the same way. In giving of ourselves at great cost to see the world redeemed. Jesus says in John 17, when He prays to the Father, As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So part of my motivation this morning isn't just an evangelistic text, though I want that. I want you to see God's love in sending the Son and be saved if you're not. But if you're a Christian, I want you to see that Jesus has sent you the same way the Father sent Him. And so you should be motivated by the love of God that you hear about this morning to go to the mission field and be a shining example of what we read about this morning. This verse begins with the word for. Joshua pointed out in the scripture reading that when a, when a verse begins with a word like so, or therefore, or for, or because, you should pay attention to what came before it. And so this verse that is probably the most famous verse in the history of the world is usually a verse that's known outside of its own context. Most people couldn't tell you what the for refers to in for God so loved the world. And so we have to remember the context of this. This comes after Jesus has finished his conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of Israel, a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus has just explained to him that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up. That means he must be crucified. And the reason that he must be crucified is so that whoever, anyone that trusts, anyone that believes in him, may have eternal life. And the question is, why is it that Jesus has to be crucified so that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life? And now, in verse 16, we get a commentary on that. It begins with the word for to tell us why the Son of Man must be crucified. Now, there's a bit of um, an interpretive difficulty in determining who is speaking in verses 16 through 21. When John wrote his gospel, Greek in that period did not use quotation marks or punctuation. Likewise, John did not write the gospel using red ink to to indicate which words are the words of Jesus. That's a, a modern invention that's less than 100 years old. And so there are some places where it's difficult to tell where the words of Jesus finish 
And the commentary of John the Apostle, who's writing the Gospel, begins. Two of those are places in John chapter 3, where some interpreters in translating the Bible take Jesus' words to continue through the end of verse 21. And in the latter half of the Gospel, they take John the Baptist's words to continue on through the end of the chapter. And others stop the quotation at verse 16 to show that John is giving us his commentary as an apostle on the meaning and the reason of what Jesus said. Now, thankfully, I'm not too worried about which way you interpret that, because either way, whether it's Jesus being quoted or John the apostle giving his commentary, all scripture is God-breathed. And so God has inspired this, and the meaning of it doesn't, doesn't change. But as I refer to John writing, that'll indicate to you, I believe this is John's commentary. But it's not a major point. Well, the first thing we see in our explanation, then, is for God. God so loved the world. And, of course, we're reading about a, a verse here that explains what God has done to save. And we saw last week that He had His Son lifted up He had Him crucified on a cross under His curse for sins to redeem those who believe in Him. And now this week, the first thing that we see is the motivation behind the crucifixion of the Son was not ultimately the evil in the hearts of the Jewish rulers or the evil in the hearts of the Roman rulers, but the love in the heart of God. Salvation has its origin in God. God is the initiator of the plan of redemption. God loved the world. God sent His Son. He did not have to have His arm twisted. He was not coerced into saving or making salvation possible. God sent His Son. And we see that God so loved the world. And like I said, we learn that God didn't need His arm twisted. He didn't act in reluctance. He acted freely out of love. The only thing that constrained God to save the world was His own love. God's love of the world motivated Him to provide eternal life. Now the word so has been interpreted in two ways. One way is to interpret the word so to mean in a particular fashion or a particular manner. You might give your children instructions on how to tie their shoes, and you might say, you, you bend the shoelaces like so. And so indicates, here's the manner in which you do this. So they would interpret this to mean, God loved the world in this manner. God loved the world in this way that He sent His Son, which I think would be a fine interpretation. The other way, and I prefer this way, I think the the grammar indicates it, is it refers to the intensity of God's love. God so loved the world. His love for the world was so great. He had such intense love for the world. But both these things are true. The manner in which God loved the world was by sending His Son And the intensity of God's love for the world is seen in the value of His gift, which is His Son. Where we learn also that God so loved the world. And we see several things from this phrase, the world. First of all, John using the word world shows us that God's redemptive love is not restricted by ethnicity. 
God's redemptive love is not restrained by what country you come from. Jesus has just said, whoever believes in the crucified Son of Man may have eternal life. John is using intentionally provocative language to get the attention of his Jewish readers. Look, God's love is not restricted to Israel. God so loved the world. And remember the context here. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the teacher of Israel, a Pharisee. And in their day, they were fond of thinking that God's love was given ultimately and only to Israel. And that they were going to enter the kingdom and not the nations. And Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. That's not restricted to anyone. And Jesus says, anyone who believes will have eternal life. And so we learn that the sacrifice of the Son of God for the sins was for the sins of the world. And that the redeeming love of God is not limited by whether you are Jew or Gentile, male or free, slave or... Male or female, slave or free. God's love is available to all who will call upon Jesus Christ and they become sons. That's what John's language here, when he says God so loved the world, reflects. That's why later on in chapter 2, when the Samaritan woman goes and bears witness about Jesus to her town, the Samaritans, mark that, the Samaritans come back and they say, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's the gospel that's being proclaimed in John's gospel. That's why John writes in his first letter to the church, John 1, verse, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, He is the propitiation for our sins, speaking to his Jewish readers, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't just die for Jews, but for Greeks as well. And in Revelation chapter 5, John also records. Notice John is the one recording these things. It's a theme for him. He gets a glimpse into heaven in Revelation 5, 9. And he sees them praising the Lamb, the elders and the living creatures. And they fall down before the Lamb and they sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, he was lifted up, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. God's kingdom and God's priesthood in the end, in the new heavens and the new earth, will be made up of people who have been purchased by the blood of the crucified and risen Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. And it will be, His kingdom will be made up of those from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. From the very beginning, God's intention was to save a people for Himself from all the nations of the earth. And Israel was a vessel to bring forth that end, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true Son of God. World shows us something else that I think is very important in the context of how John 3.16 has often been used. World also shows us that the objects of God's redemptive love are sinners. Who God loved was sinners. World is not a neutral term in John's Gospel. I did a quick search on the word world in... Um, 
in John's Gospel last night and read through every time it's used and look for those places where we can learn something about the nature of the world from the context in which John uses that word. And I've given you the groupings in your outline of those verses, but let me read you what I discovered by looking at world in John's Gospel. The world is a place of darkness in need of light. The world is a place that does not know its maker. The world has sin which the Lamb of God must take away. The world needs to be saved. The world is condemned and will be judged. The world's people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. The world is dead and it needs to be given life from above. The world hates Jesus because he exposes its evil works. The ruler of the world is Satan and the devil. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit and therefore cannot know the Father or the Son. The world hates Jesus and his followers who are not of the world but chosen by Christ and given to him by God from out of the world. The world rejoices over the crucifixion of Jesus. The world is a place of tribulation for Jesus' followers. And the world does not know the Father. That is the world in the Gospel of John. And that is who God is said to love with such a great love. It is this world, sinful, wicked, dark, and evil, that God loves so much that He gives His only Son as a sacrifice for their sins. And that emphasizes, I think, why the redeeming love of God has to originate in God. It can't originate in our works. It can't originate in our worth. It can't originate in our value because we have none. We are dead and fallen and sinful and wicked and evil. And God loved us and sent His Son to die for us. And I think it's important to understand our sinfulness because when we downplay the sinfulness and the wickedness of the world, we must downplay the grace of God. Because it is the magnitude of our sin that magnifies the grace of God. If we were just a little bit sinful, God would be just a little bit gracious. But our total depravity, the fact that we hate God, the fact that as it says in Genesis chapter 6, that every desire of the heart is only evil continually, shows us how great God's love must be. That He would love us. Now that might raise a problem in your mind. Actually, in 21st century America, it probably doesn't raise a problem in your mind. What raises a problem in our mind today is how can a loving God condemn the world? But what should raise a problem in your mind is how can a just God love sinners? How can a holy God have such love for the world? Well, this shows us a glimpse of, the, of God's dual stance toward the world. I think, I think we see two stances of God in this. On the one hand, God condemns the world for sin. Look at verse 18. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are condemned already and condemned for being evil. And the fact that God sent His Son, we know is for a sacrifice for sin. He has to judge sin. And on the other hand, God so loves the world that He gives us His Son. We see this in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 18. The Lord is uh, pronouncing... He's giving His instruction for those who should die under the death penalty... And in Ezekiel 18.20, the Lord says, The soul who sins shall die. And then three verses later, the Lord asks rhetorically, 
Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So here in one context, we have God prescribing again and again and again, here's the death penalty for this sin. And then God's saying, but notice, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Another classic example is Jeremiah chapter 48. The Lord speaks at great length at the condemnation that he's bringing upon Moab for their sinfulness. And he says in verse 26 that he is going to make Moab drunk and it will wallow in its own vomit and be held in derision. In verses 35 and 42, he says he's going to destroy Moab. He's going to bring Moab to an end. In verse 38, he says there will be nothing but lamentation in Moab and he's going to break Moab like a vessel for which no one cares. And in the midst of God proclaiming his destruction that he's going to bring on Moab, he says, interjected between these verses, I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. My heart mourns for Moab like a flute. God can simultaneously hate Moab's Sin and their wickedness and promise to destroy them while his heart mourns over Moab and desires them to repent. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then two, verses, two chapters later, Paul writes that the righteousness of God has been manifested through the saving gospel of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 begins by saying the wages of sin is death. And it ends by saying the free gift of God is eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2 begins by saying that we are children of wrath by nature. We are under God's anger against sin. We're children of wrath. And then verses 4 and 5 follow to say that because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. While we were sinners under His wrath, He loved us with a great love. Psalm 5.5 states in no uncertain terms, You hate all evildoers. Notice that. Psalm 5.5 doesn't say, You hate their evil, but love the evildoer. You hate the sin, but love the sinner. It says, You hate all evildoers. Or as the King James and NAS says, All who do iniquity. And yet we read now, God so loved the world that He gave His Son, His only begotten Son, God did not send His Son for people who did not sin. God did not send His Son for holy people because we wouldn't need the sacrifice of His Son if we weren't sinners. He sent His Son out of love for sinners to save us. And that's why John 3.16 functions as an explanation of John 3.14 and 15. That's why the Son of Man has to be lifted up. In these verses, the love... And the wrath of God meets. The giving of His Son is simultaneously an expression of His love. He loved the world, so He sent His Son. And it is a satisfaction of His wrath. His love motivates Him to send His Son to take our place in life and in death. So that if we believe, our sins are paid for and we have life. And at the same time, His wrath is present. Because His wrath is being poured out on our sins 
on Christ on the cross. God's love motivates and His wrath is satisfied. One application of that is you cannot pit God's love and His wrath against each other. You cannot say, I believe in a God of love, but not a God of wrath. Because God's love in John 3.16 makes no sense outside of a context of sin and wrath and judgment. That's what made the love love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's wrath cannot diminish the doctrine of God's love, and God's love may never diminish the doctrine of God's wrath. Here's another important observation from John 3.16. God's love does not motivate Him to overlook sin. It motivates Him to address it and to remove it. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. God does not say, I love the world so much that I'm not going to notice that they rebel against me. I'm not going to notice that they drag my name through the mud. I'm not going to notice that they're created in my image and they worship created images. I'm not going to notice those things because I love so much, I just don't see sin. That is not God's love in this verse. God so loved the world that He did what? He addressed sin and He removed sin. He sent His Son to endure what sin deserves, His curse, His wrath. Death, so that those he loved could be saved. You know, that's a problem. If you read through the Old Testament, that's what Paul addresses in the book of Romans. God put his son forward as a propitiation so that he could be both the just and the justifier to show his righteousness. The world could say, you're saving people, you're forgiving sinners, you're redeeming people, and you don't punish their sin. And so God puts Jesus on the cross publicly to say, I punish sin in a substitute, in Jesus Christ. I had a pastor who told me one time, in our church we don't address sin. We are a grace-motivated church. And if I had the guts to say it, and I didn't, I would have said, if you don't address sin, you don't know anything about grace. There is no grace outside of sin. Because sin is, grace is undeserved favor. Favor we don't deserve. And the reason we don't deserve it is because we are such great sinners. And if you ignore sin to preach a gospel of positive thinking, you must ignore grace because you have no context in which God can be gracious when you remove rebellion. God's love did not motivate him to overlook sin, but to address it and remove it. And that is what love will look like in your life. That is what love should look like in your parenting, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your church, and in your evangelism. Having a godlike love for your child or your spouse or your fellow church member or your friend or for the lost person you're talking to doesn't mean because I love them, I'm going to ignore their rebellion against God. It's going to say, I'm going to be like God. God so loved the world that He did what was necessary to remove my sin. And so if I love a person with God-like love, I'm going to do whatever is necessary that they might repent of their sins and have it removed through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us to John's description of what God did because of His love. 
God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only Son. The word gave emphasizes the sacrificial nature of the gift of His only Son. This is not to imply here by saying that He gave that He was just giving us a nice present. He is a nice present. But it's not as if God was saying, you know what? I really love the world and I just really enjoy fellowshipping with my son for all of eternity. And I think it would be a nice thing to do for the world to get to know my son. And so I'm just going to send him down there and he's going to live amongst them and they can have fellowship with him like I do. It'll just be a nice present. Well, we do get to have fellowship with Jesus. And that is the greatest blessing of salvation. But that's not what it means that he gave. The giving is in terms of giving a sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what it means in verse 14, that the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be crucified. In John's first letter, 1 John chapter 4, he explains God's sending of His Son in sacrificial language. 1 John 4 verses 9 through 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And then John explains what it means that the Son was sent. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big theological term that's important. And I'm glad the translation doesn't substitute something weaker. To be propitious means to be favorably inclined. If you're propitious towards someone, you have good will towards them. You, you're going to do what's best for them. You are not their enemy. And so to be propitiated means to, to, be, to become propitious, to become to a point where you have goodwill towards a person. You are doing what is best for them. You're on their side. And so for God to be propitious, it means that He is inclined to act for what is good for us. But if God is just and holy, He can't be propitious. He has to address our sins. Sin has to be punished. Rebels have to be kicked out of the kingdom. And the evil has to be crushed and destroyed. God needs to, in His wrath, be propitiated. Something has to happen in our sinful state and in God's righteous, just, holy wrath to make Him favorable toward us so that He can treat us with grace. A propitiation, then, is something that makes someone favorably inclined. God sent His Son. God sent His Son. The God who had wrath against us. The God who was angry. The God whose enemy we were. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, who in His wrath was against us, at the same time was for us and became for us by sending Jesus to propitiate Himself. He had Jesus be lifted up on a cross. He poured out the fullness of His wrath and His anger against sin on His Son. And because Jesus lived a perfectly holy life and deserved no wrath, He could die for the wrath of another. And because our sins were placed on Jesus on the cross, when we trust in Him, God looks at Jesus and says to us, Your sin has been paid for. Everything your wickedness deserves has been put on Jesus. Therefore, I have only goodwill toward you. 
I am propitious. I am acting favorably toward you because my son satisfied the demands of my justice and my wrath. That is what it means that God sent His Son. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We also see the greatness of the love of God in the nature of His gift. He gave His only begotten Son. The Greek word means an only child. It's in the masculine tense, so it's an only son. And the word is used in the Bible not simply to indicate an only child in the sense of having no other children born to you, but indicates the uniqueness of a son. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says Abraham was offering up his only begotten son. Same Greek word. But what do we know about Abraham? He had a son named Ishmael, right? He had another son. So why does it call him his only son? Because Isaac was unique. He was the son of the promise. He was the son through whom Abraham and the nations would be blessed. There was no other son like him. God's redemptive covenant plan went through no other child of Abraham, only through Isaac. Likewise with Jesus. What did we sing this morning? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons of God. Scripture calls us sons. If you have faith, you are a son. Biblical language. Adam, in Luke chapter 3, is called the Son of God. Israel, in Hosea, in the Old Testament, is called God's Son. So what does it mean that Jesus is His only begotten Son? It means that Jesus is utterly unique in His type of sonship. Jesus is the only Son who is eternal as the Son of God. He was with God in the beginning He is the only Son of whom it can be said He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So that everyone who sees this Son sees the Father. Only Jesus the Son had glory with the Father in His presence before the world existed. There was never a Son like Jesus and there never will be a Son of God like Jesus. He is absolutely unique. He is infinite and His value is infinite and immeasurable and incomparable. And that is the Son that God gave. A Son who is so unique. A -a one-of-a-kind Son whom there is no other like. He is irreplaceable. There is none like Him. That means He's infinitely valuable. If you have a jewel and there's no jewel in the world like it, it is priceless. That's what God gave. That shows the remarkableness of God's love. That He would give a Son of such unique value. The greatness of His gift demonstrates the greatness of His love. The Puritan preacher John Flavel asked the question, Who would part with a son for the sake of his dearest friends? But God gave him two and delivered him four enemies. Oh, love unspeakable. Until you can speak about and summarize and describe the value of Jesus Christ, you are unable to speak about and summarize and describe the love of God. The greatness of His gift demonstrates the greatness of His redeeming love. The worth of the Son is unspeakable, and so God's love is speakable too, unspeakable too. 
Now, I want to address an important caution that I think I need to raise. Because sometimes when I hear this verse used in evangelistic appeals, the greatness of God's love is used to describe our worth. You were worth so much to God that He had to send His Son to redeem you. We should not hastily draw the false conclusion that the value of the gift reflects the value of those for whom it is given. The value of the Son does not necessarily reflect the value of those the Son was given to save. What do I mean by that? God's love, His gift to redeem us was not like the purchase of jewelry. If you walk into a jewelry store and you see a diamond that is worth $1,000 and you take $1,000 cash out of your pocket and you say, I want to purchase that diamond, what have you done? You have exchanged $1,000 worth of currency for $1,000 worth of diamond. It is an equal exchange. And in fact, you've said, I would rather have the diamond than the cash in my hand. That's why I'm buying it. That is not what God has done here. God has not said, I have a son who is of this much worth. And I see precious diamonds wallowing in the mud down there on earth. And because they are equal to the worth of my son, I'm going to give my son to redeem these priceless diamonds. We are not equal to the worth of the son. He is God. He is God. This is not a business transaction of trading like for like. And furthermore, God would never say, I want them more than I want the son whom I have, so I'll do this exchange. Likewise, if a man went into a, a diamond store and he exchanged, he gave $1,000 for a diamond that was worth $10,000, you'd say that man was wise. He made an improvement in his state. He exchanged something of $1,000 for something of $10,000. That is not what God has done. God has not said this world is so much more valuable than my son that I'm willing to pay him to get them. Paul does not write... In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were incredibly valuable diamonds, God saw a bargain and exchanged Christ for us. He says, rather, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, not diamonds, sinners, Christ died for us. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ while we were Enemies, not lost friends, enemies of God. The greatness of the gift does not display our greatness, but the greatness of the love of God. God's gift of His Son doesn't show how great we are. It shows how great God is. And God wants His people to know that when He saves them. Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6-8. through he says to Israel, or Moses says, for the Lord, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. We're chosen to be treasured. We must be valuable, right? Out of all the people on the face of the earth. And then he goes on to say, it, is, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. I love that verse because essentially it says, it is not because of your greatness, Israel. It is not because of who you were, Israel, 
The reason that God loved you was because God loved you. The only motivation we can see behind the love of God in Scripture is the love of God. He loves because He chooses to love. And not because we can demand it or deserve it. God loves us because He has chosen to love us. You cannot give any other explanation to God's love than the fact that He chose to love. God loves because He loves. Furthermore, God loves and He redeems so that He can show off the greatness of His love and His mercy and His grace. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says that while we were children of wrath, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive, He raised us up, He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And why? Because He wanted to show everyone how precious and valuable you are. No! Paul says... God did this so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith and not of works so that no one may boast. If you're going to boast in anything, it's not your own value. It is the cross of Christ. It is the love of God. And Paul says, God saved us so that for eternity He could show to the universe, look how rich my love is. My grace is immeasurable. And these redeemed prove it. I have lavished on them the inheritance of my Son, Jesus Christ. Because my love is great. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. Because if it does, I think you have a skewed understanding of what God's love means. In this world, we think that love is when people act in a way that helps us make much of ourselves. Love is when people help us have self-esteem and realize our self-worth. That is not biblical love. Biblical love is God helping us to see His worth. Biblical love, as John Piper says, is not God making much of us but sending His Son to die for us so that we could make much of Him forever. Heaven is not a place where you're going to stand around and look at mirrors that reflect your value. Heaven is a place where you will be conformed into Jesus Christ's image so that you reflect His value. We will become mirrors of Him. Therefore, our response to John 3.16 should be one of humility and not boasting. We cannot come to the end of this verse thinking how great and priceless I must be that God would give His Son for me. That's not what we sing. The Gospel has the opposite effect. It humbles us. It makes us sing songs of humility. What if Christians wrote in their hymns and songs for 2,000 years? They don't write that they are amazing value of human beings that God would die for us. We sing amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, would die for me? You died for me, a sinner. How can it be? It's amazing love. And our wretchedness is what makes grace amazing. So John Newton wrote, Amazing grace! How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I'm a wretch. That makes grace amazing. The choir did not sing this morning how great the worth of each of us, how vast beyond all measure that God would give His only Son shows we are priceless treasures. Now they sang, if I remember right, how great the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch 
His treasure. God's love is vast and immeasurable because we are wretched. Stephen Curtis Chapman sums it up, I think, in his song, Much of You. How can I kneel here and think of the cross, the thorns and the whip and the nails and the spear, the infinite cost, to purchase my pardon and bear all my shame and think I have anything worth boasting in except for your name. Because I am a sinner and you are the Savior. This is your love, O God, not to make much of me, but to send your own Son so that we could make much of you for all eternity. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son should humble us into the dust and make us fall on our faces and sing the value of the worth of God who sent His Son to become a man, to come to earth, to live and die and rise from the dead for me and my redemption. And so if you are not a believer this morning, here's what I call upon you to do. See in this verse that you are in need of someone to die for you. And see that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son and He gave Him, as we'll look at more next week, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And so my calling to you this morning is believe. Turn from your sins and believe. Believe God sent His Son to die for your sins and He was raised from the dead. And if you will believe in Him, you will have eternal life. And if you are a Christian this morning... Be humbled. Be so very humbled by the love of God who would give His unique only Son to save you a wretch. And if you believe in Him, you have eternal life and riches immeasurable in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I confess that I am nothing but a clay pot, fragile and weak and of no worth in itself, as we all are. But I thank you for filling me with a treasure of the gospel. Father, I confess that my words have fallen terribly short of describing the greatness of your love and the worth of your Son. But Father, I pray that you would use my weakness this morning to be your strength. I pray that you'd send your spirit to give us new birth to those who don't believe. Cause them to believe. Cause them to see and to hear. Make their hearts alive with the love of you and your Son. And Father, for we who are Christians, overwhelm us with the wealth of your generosity. Oh, make us generous givers. Make us glad worshipers. Make us happy goers to the mission field because we get to look in a little way like you. Oh, Father, come and work and magnify your Son. Magnify your love in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.